Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So we did this last time, we looked at what the best model was in this situation, and oh boy, the microphone's working a lot better today. <laughs> anyway, uh, when you look at these three models, we have a two-variable model and two one-variable models. I would probably go, I would probably go with this one, of the two-variable model on the right, because we have, we're explaining a lot more variance here than we are here. Um, that's nice. Also, we know there's no overlap, which is beautiful, because 30 for sum of squares here, 50 here, and 80 here. So they're actually explaining unique variants. And that's a really important thing, as we'll talk about today. So uh, for me, that, that really is probably the best one. Though I would accept that if this was a test question, if you made the argument here that a straight line is easier to understand for most people on a graph than a plane, that's a decent argument. So one could argue that that's okay. That is wrong. <laughs> the one in the middle is not the best model. It can't be. It explains the smallest amount of variance. Right? But because there's no overlap, I mean, you really... And it's only a plane. Planes aren't that hard to understand. They're like a surface. So I'm pretty sure the one on the right is the best one. Now... We talked when we talked about uh, empty cells and unbalanced sides about type one and type two sums of squares. The same sort of thing happens here with regression. There's two kinds of sums of squares you can calculate. There are type one sums of squares, and the only reason I'm telling you about this, by the way, is so if you can do this with SPSS or SAS or a lot of these programs. You can get type one and type two sums of squares for each variable, so they become a diagnostic tool for you. I'm not going to ask you to actually play with them on a, uh, a test or on a final example. The type 1 sum of squares, depending on the order the variables go in the model, the type 2s don't. And I'll explain this in a second. So let's say we have a three variable model. So we have a data set with a y, an x1, an x2, and an x3. Okay, so that's, that's what we have. So we're going to take a look at this and try to determine which variables we want to keep in the model. The Type 1 sum of squares, so the sum of squares regression for each of these. Just x1. The type 1 sum of squares for x2 is x1 and x2. The type 1 sum of squares for x3 is x1, x2, x3. So it depends on what order you actually put them in the model. If you put x3 in first, then the type 1 sum of squares for x3 is just going to be x3 by itself. And then if we put x1 in second, it would be x3, x1. The nice thing about type 2 is you consider it to be much more useful because it's x1 given x2 and x3 are in the model. This is telling you only about extra variation. In other words, the type 1 sum of squares, it's like it's going through steps. It's like, okay, we've got a one-variable model, now a two-variable model, plus a sum of squares regression for the whole model, sum of squares regression for the whole three-variable model. These are looking at just extra variance given, that's what that bar means, given that x2 and x3 are already in the model, given that x1 and x3 are in the model, given that x1 and x2 are in the model. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so you can see, in fact, <coughs> the type 2s, as a sort of diagnostic tool for you, are going to be a hell of a lot more useful. So if you, if you are using, if you're trying to determine how much extra variance has been added, you're going to use the type 2 sum of squares. Okay? And you might see that as an option on a, on a printout, uh, like on a, on a data, an output on a data for a program, you would use that. And the question you might ask is, well, why should you care? Um, if there's no correlation actually between the variables, the type 1s and type 2 should be equal. In other words, if there is no overlap between the x variables, then the x1s and the x2s should be exactly the same. So that becomes a diagnostic tool to tell if there is a relationship between the x variables. That's awesome. 
It's very useful. So now instead of, um, and remember, it will be easy with three variables. That's easy. You've got a correlation matrix, you just take a look if they're correlated. What if you've got 150 variables? And you want to choose some subset of them. So let's choose these five. They seem reasonable. Then it becomes a lot more useful. And you're going to get no overlap, but a little tiny bit. If they're only a little bit different, that's okay, that's pretty good. If there is a correlation, the type 1 sum of scores are not equal to the type 2 sum of scores. Uh, there are always going to be some correlation. Oh, almost always, there's going to be some correlation. That cooked up example of what's the best model was no correlation. That's vanishingly rare. It's hard to find two variables that don't correlate. It just doesn't, doesn't matter what the hell they are. Right? It ain't the same. We'll talk a little bit more about this later on. Just something to keep in mind. It's, it's something that's, that's useful for, for detecting when there's a relationship between the variables. What can type 2 sums of squares give you? So type 2 sums of squares give you the extra variation accounted for by having a variable in the model, given the other ones are already there. This will give us a nice statistic we can actually use called the coefficients of partial determination. Okay? Or um, it's certainly well, it's certainly opposite of our of R squared. Remember, big R squared is this thing of how much variance is accounted for by all the variables in the Y. That's the coefficient of multiple determination. The coefficient of partial determination, in fact, is going to give us, in a way, a statistical control for, let's take this, let's use an example. I want to look at your years of education, your IQ, and your income. We know that years of education and IQ are going to overlap a lot. They just are. Right? It would be nice to know how much years of education contributed to your income, ignoring your IQ. What this does, this coefficient of partial determination, is it actually says what we're going to do is we're going to ignore the overlap. And now we're just going to see the little bit that's accounted for solely by years of education. So it's unique variance. So that's what the type 2 is. In fact, that's what they help you do. That's pretty cool. There's two ways you could do a study like that, right? You could find people that all had exactly the same IQs and then correlate their education with their income, or you could just not care and do this. It's a lot easier. So extra variation, so if the coefficient of partial determination, gives us the extra variation accounted for by adding in another variable. Uh, not square, you can take the square root of it, I should say, and get what's called the partial correlation. And you might see this in a paper sometimes, where they talk about a partial correlation or that they partialed out some variable. So what you're saying in that case is, I'm statistically controlling for something. So you don't square it, you take the square root of it. Okay? So all this does is it gives you extra variance, unique variance accounted for by a variable. Not variance that's shared, unique variance. Okay? Of one plus dot 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 plus b sub b minus one x sub b minus one plus e. That's our prediction model, right? There's nothing here with <coughs> variables coming together at all. Two x variables. Nothing. Nothing at all. There's nothing there saying, oh yeah, and the overlap. 
This actually is saying explicitly that there's no overlap. Because math's like that, right? If it doesn't say it here, it, it's not there. And we found out, remember, from analysis of variance that the assumptions all fall out of the model, right? They all come from the model we start with. So one of the assumptions of, of, of multiple regression is that there's no relationship between the x variables. And there's almost always going to be a relationship between the x variables. It's virtually impossible to have one that has no relationship. But there's nothing there. So we care about we care about the overlapping variance of x variables. Because we don't want it to be there, even though it's almost always there. This problem of overlapping x variables, of shared variance between predictor variables, is called multicollinearity. It's multicollinearity, which is a great word. It's up there with like psychoneuroendocrinology. It just sounds great. <coughs> it sounds like something you hear on Star Trek, you know? Sir, there's multicollinearity in the warp core, you know? Just great cycle babble, techno babble. It's a real thing, unlike, say, warp cores. See, what you're doing is you're violating an assumption if there's multicollinearity. And you never want to violate assumptions, Chris. Wait, okay, what is multicollinearity? It's over, it's, it's when two or more um, predictor variables, the x variables, are correlated. Okay. Yeah, when they overlap, when they, when they if you think of the Venn diagram thing, okay. when they overlap as well as overlapping with Y. Because right? oh. they're going to overlap with the Y variants. They, if they don't, we're not going to use them. But we don't want them overlapping with each other, except that they almost always do. So they overlap with each other and with Y. And with Y. Okay. That's right. So you're violating an assumption. This will change the Bs. This will change those uh, coefficients. Because remember, it's something times x1 plus something times x2 plus something times x3. It'll change these. And they're the key to our model, aren't they? Because we're saying we multiply, you know, so we're saying income equals some number plus, I'll pick something, 27 times your IQ plus 43 times your years of education. But actually it's wrong because the Bs were calculated based on the notion that, excuse me, based on the notion that there is no overlap between years of education and income, and well, you know that's probably wrong. So it's going to change these, and we don't want that. So we have to be able to detect multicollinearity. We have to find it and destroy it. Well, we can't destroy it. We have to at least find it. This is one of those uh, assumptions you can violate a little bit. Kind of like how in analysis variance you can violate the homogeneity variance a little bit, you can violate this a little bit. It's going to, however, change your model and change it for the worse. The easiest way to do this is look at a correlation matrix between your variables. It's an easy thing to do in any kind of stats package. You just say, give me the correlations of every variable with every other variable. Oh, look, x1 and x2 correlate 0.5. Uh, one of those we're not going to use. So you probably have to chuck up one of your variables. Just get rid of one of them. Yeah, so where's the line roughly for the R? I know it's subjective, but... Like, it's a good question. I mean, I'd be really upset if anything over about 0.15. Really? Yeah, I wouldn't like that. Huh. Um, that's just where I would draw the line. I mean, that would explain what, like, two, two point something, kind of a, like R squared or Q. Yeah, you know, you think, you think of the amount of variance, so... Yeah, that'd be about what? 0.15 would be 50. Yeah, that'd be 2.25% of variance. That's very low, I think. It's pretty low. Like, that's certainly yeah. not a significant thing. No, it probably wouldn't be. Um, when you're starting to get up around 0.2, you know, at 0.2, you've got, I mean, you don't even accept 0.2, but at that point, you're now explaining 4% 4 of variance is overlap. And we have this magical rule of 5. <laughs> you know, so maybe there, right? So when you get to say point. 
Say there's two variables that each explain 25. Yeah, and that's when you might say, well, gee, that's too damn bad. Yeah. <laughs> just use them both. So yeah, it's that sort of weight. Yeah, it really is. It's it's a weighting thing. Like it's it's cost benefit analysis all the time. You know, typically what you'll have here is if you'll get if you get a lot of multicollinearity, they also both overlap quite a bit, right? It just sort of follows logically. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So if you had So here's the variance in y. Okay, here's the variance in y. Now here's the variance in x1. We like that, right? We're explaining some variance. Right there, we're explaining probably about 10%. Mm, yeah, looks like it's about one tenth of this area. Okay. Now let's make it so we're going to bring in an x2 and we're going to have some multicollinearity. Now here we've got another, well, it's a little smaller. Let's say it's uh, 8%. But then there's variants that they share. This isn't unique variants that they're both explaining. This is overlapping variants. This part right here. Well, this here, both of these is multicollinear. But this is not unique variants that they're sharing with Y. But this here, the whole area, is multicollinear. I did distinguish the part that's shared with y with the, the normal way. You can, yeah. You can, you typically don't worry about that because frankly, even that, um, <coughs> this overlap still screws up the beta weights of these. Right, because you, the, the math assumes there's no overlap. So it's still a problem. I see where you're going, which is, what if it's hard, and this would be a, a nice judgment call, right? What if the amount of variance they share that x1, x2, and y share is like 0.0001, and this is like 0.1? At that point, you'd say, you know what? I don't care. Keep them both. You're probably still going to get a significant correlation. Oh, yeah, exactly. You're going to get a significant correlation with x and y, but the shared variance with x1, x2, and y wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, and in that case, the judgment call I would make would be, I'll keep them both. Right, so you see what Mike's saying? That if this little part here, this little sort of almost triangle thing, if that was really small, they're explaining the variance in y, but there's still a lot of overlap between x1 and x2. The lack of the, 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 their unique variance explanatory power, that's my better way to put that, of each x variable is excellent, but they still overlap, which screws up the math. That's all behind this, and we don't have to know. That's still a problem, but the fact that they're explaining unique variance in Y would please me. At which point, I would say, I'll keep them both. That would be the judgment call I made, I think. Unless they overlap like 0.5 with each other, it's stupid. And a lot of times when you're collecting these data, I was talking to my friend Todd's uh, uh, cigarette smoking data, you know, a lot of those variables overlap with each other like crazy. You know, uh, or something like time to first cigarette, and do you think you could quit today? Yes or no? Overlap like crazy. But I think in fact those were both in the final model because everything here is going to overlap. Because of course, when you pick the variables, you're picking all things that are about cigarette smoking. Well, of course they're all going to overlap. So practically a bit of a problem. Right? Practically, you're always going to find variables. You're not going to say, okay, well, yeah, we have to find one that's going to be unique. You don't know that, but you're pretty sure there's going to be a lot over. Yeah, but it's kind of subjective, but again, yeah. how often would you say you find this? Uh, every single time every you do a regression model. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so that's multicollinearity. Now, we assume a linear model. 
We assume straight lines. What if the model isn't linear? What if the, the lines aren't straight? There's a lot of things in nature. And think about it. What are we doing? We're doing life science. We're studying nature. There's a lot of things in nature that are exponentials and logarithms and all kinds of crazy things. Lots of that straight lines are kind of rare, almost, when you think about it. What if you had, don't worry about this. What if you had this? Y equals lambda sub zero to the lambda sub one x times e. <laughs> See, that's scary looking. That's, that looks like, um, you ever watch that show Numbers where the guy solves math with, solves crime with math? Well, a few years ago. I loved it. I loved that show. This looks the kind of thing he'd write on. It was one huge multiple regression, which is pretty cool. Time series analysis. And the math, some HDTV that you can actually pause and look. The equations were right, it's kind of neat. <laughs> you look at that and you go, ah! All that's actually saying is that we have something that's an exponential. It's an exponential, right? Because it's an exponent. But you might scream to yourself, ah! Uh, if you get the logarithm of that, you get a nice linear equation. Beautiful. So this is a case where you could take the log, and if you have no logarithms in a long time, don't worry about it. The point I'm making here, because I'm never going to show you something like that, and on the final exam, I'm going to show you that and say, what transformation would you do? Because that's not what this class is about. But one could simply, one of the point I'm making is, some things are what's called intrinsically linear. We can take something that, that isn't linear, like an exponential goes up like that, and we can make that into a straight line by taking the logarithm of both sides. Okay? And that's all I've done here. It's nothing fancy. If you know logarithms, that makes sense. If you don't, uh, it just, it's true. It's just true. As I've said before, if you're Catholic, I'm Pope Dave the first. I always pick that one because I don't know any other sort of religions that have like a head guy. Okay, you're 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 Anglican, and I'm Archbishop of Canterbury, Dave. Go with that. I'm not picking on any religion. That's pretty cool, actually. So a lot of times you look at something, you go, oh, that's not a straight line. I can't do it. You say, well, actually, you just take the. You can transform it. So an intrinsically linear regression is, a, is something where you can actually use a mathematical transformation to turn it into a straight line. Not everything is intrinsically linear. So just because you see something that isn't a straight line, you can't just go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go ask a mathematician, or frankly, I'll go ask someone who's right now taking grade 11 math what this function looks like, and they'll say, oh, I know, that's a an X, a Y, or a Z. It's this kind of, uh, you know, variable. This kind of function. Not everything is. Some things aren't. They're curves, and you can't fix them. Okay. So we, did, we can have overlap, and we've got to have straight lines. There's also no mention of all interaction. It's a completely additive model. There's no more, I know there's a multiplication of a, of a coefficient, it could be. But there's no like x1 times x2, just like it was alpha times beta, x equals u plus alpha plus beta plus alpha beta plus epsilon. It's not there. You might have noticed that. Um, you could always throw in x1 times x2. If you know there's an interaction between two variables, you can always throw in x1 times x2. That's making a very tenuous assumption, though. Because an interaction in the sense of, of an analysis of variance just says that as there's stuff left over, right, that just due to being in a certain cell. We can't usually necessarily get a coefficient to multiply times that to make them all work. Right? Whereas here you have to. Like you can't say x1 times x2 if x1 equals this. 
x1, x2, if x1 equals this, which is what, in essence, when you think about it, that's what we do. We have plus one, minus one, minus one, plus one. We actually do that in algebraics. So it's, this can be done, but it's one of those things you do at your own risk. And by the way, when x1, x2 correlate with a variable called x1, oh yes, it's made up of them. <laughs> so you're actually purposely reducing multicollinearity in your model. So you better have a damn good reason to put that in there. straight up linear model for variables. I can't remember the whole model, but I remember it's for variables. Chosen from 22. Stuff to know what the term should actually be, x1, x2. Um, the, the interaction term should do it. This is where exploratory data analysis and a ton of experience actually really plays a role. And a lot of reading of old data, old papers. Right? You don't usually do this. I mention it because one can do it, but it's not something uh, I would ever suggest you do, to be honest with you. I would do it if someone said, I really know what I'm talking about, and yes, we always have this term and it works. It's like, okay, then that's fine. Okay, how are we going to select our predictors? Yes. Well, what about qualitative ones? You know, like sex or hair color. They're great if they're binary, zeros and ones. Right? Because we can, if we had sex and we said, instead of saying male or female, we put in zero and one. And we say it's the number of Y chromosomes you have. None or one. That's easy. Don't give me X, Y, Y. Yes, I know those people exist. So we could do sex that. Um, hair color, if we had like red and brown and black and blonde, could we do that? Well, no. Because remember, this is all numbers, right? So how are we going to assign numbers to red, brown, black, and blonde? We're going to use one, two, three, and four? Well, we can't. Because if like brown is two and red is one, that, that's saying that brown is two times hairier than red. And the hairiest of hair is blonde. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. So, and remember, it's going to be zeros and ones, not ones and twos, for it to be meaningful. Uh, whoops. There is a way around things that are zeros that aren't that have more than two uh, levels. Anything with two levels is fine, right? Because it's got zeros and ones. You just got none and one. How would you do it with hair color? Well, you do something called dummy coding. Um, dummy coding is we have now four variables. Not one for hair color, but four variables. Do you have red hair? Zero or one. Do you have black hair? Zero or one. Do you have brown hair? Zero or one. Do you have blonde hair? Zero or one. If you've got blonde hair, your scores on those four variables are 0, 0, 0, 1. Did I say red hair first that, that time? Okay, let's pretend I did. If you have red hair, your scores are 1, 0, 0, 0. So you can do it. It's called dummy coding. People don't typically do it. But you can. But now you're losing degrees of freedom every time you bring in another variable, right? So you've got to keep that in mind. One of the things you have to really watch out for are what are called Likert scales. Most of you guys know what Likert scales are, right? Um, one to seven. Strongly disagree to strongly agree. That kind of thing. There's a problem there. We work under this exceedingly tenuous assumption that those are ratio scales. Right? They have a zero point. Oh, they really don't. You can use them. And those tend to be scores on things like personality and inventories, which people use all the time in repression. Uh, a really good, usually commercially available scale, or one that's published in a peer reviewed journal, they've taken care of those things. The validity, reliability have been taken care of. 
and this, the way the scores work, that's all been taken care of, and then you can use them. If you've just got your own thing you made up, I wouldn't be putting in a regression. Because how do you know that, the, that, that, that a score of 21 on your aggression scale you invented is actually twice as aggressive as a score of 10.5? You don't. Whereas really good scales that are developed by people who know what they're doing, they kind of work out that way. I mean, IQ is a great example. IQ pretty much is a ratio variable, even though it really isn't. Right? Think about it. Is someone with an IQ of 100 twice as smart as someone with an IQ of 50? Just intuitively, it seems to me, no. Way more than twice. Is the difference between 100, between 50 and 100 the same as the difference between 100 and 150? IQ of 50, you are never living by yourself. You're never, probably not going to get a job. You have some trouble anyway. You probably won't. You may never learn to you know, go to the bathroom by yourself. 100 is the average person. 150 is a genius. But the genius and the average person can have a discussion. So is that difference to say? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't think so. What if you transform it to a Z square? Uh, even then, uh, that's, even then 150, 150 the other way, those in fact, I chose that on purpose because 100 is the mean. Um, so the Z squares would be the same, plus or minus. And I still think we have problem. And IQ is what means all the time. Now, typically in the normal rating, you know, plus or minus about one and a half standard deviations or so, it's probably fine. Probably works. When you get to the extremes, not so good. Um, experimental variables are great. If you actually designed an experiment and had people in different levels, then you will get no multicollinearity because you've put people in groups. That's one of the few times you get no collinearity at all. Right? If you put subjects in groups, and those subjects can be anything. Those could be bacteria cultures, those could be people. Those are good. So sometimes you'll do that. You'll very often do that unless you only have two variables, or sorry, two levels. You'll be using that dummy coding approach. But then it's fine. That's about the only time you'll not get multicollinearity is when you assign the subjects, the experimental units, actually to the groups. This doesn't happen very often. So what we're going to do, of course, with all this information is build a model. So this is all, been, everything I've been telling you about has been building towards the idea of finally coming in with saying, you know, cigarettes per day equals yada, yada, yada a linear combination of these four variables, that kind of question. So how do you choose which variables to use in your final model? Um, this is actually quite a bit different than ANOVA when you think about it. In ANOVA, we're, we're not we're saying is it significant or not. Here we're making a prediction with multiple regression, which I have strangely capitalized, by the way. Not really a proper noun. So we're making a prediction with regression. We're not, in fact, just saying, is, this, is it a significant effect? Different kind of question, different kind of answer. <coughs> Usually you start out with a lot of variables when you're using regression. Okay? You might start out with 20, 30. Well, one thing you could do if you have a small number of variables, because you could actually do every possible regression model and look at all of them. So with three variables, there are actually seven models you can use. There's x1, x2, x3, x1, x2, x1, x3, x1, x2, x3, and x2, x3. Yeah, it's seven. Yeah. There's seven models. You could do all seven of them and look at them. Look at their r squareds, right? Look for multicollinearity between all the variables. That's actually not hard to do. Seven models. For four variable, for all the possible four variable models, there are 15 models. So if we have four variables we're going to use, there are 15 four variable models. If we only have a total of four variables, by the way. Okay. Again, it's doable. I can do that. 
I'll have to hold, get a whole bunch of paper printed out around me, sitting on the, on the floor and looking at them all, and I can do that. For 10, there's like a zillion of them. I don't even know what the number is. I can work it out. It's 1 plus 10 choose 2 plus 10 choose 3 plus 10 choose 4 plus 10 choose 5 plus 10 choose 6 plus 10 choose 7 plus 10 choose 8 plus 10 choose 9 plus 1. That's a big number. If you've done combinatorics, that's a big freaking number. Wow. You couldn't do it with 10. When I gave my students at U of T when I was a grad student, I taught a course just like this. Uh, literally just like this. Um, the same notes, except they weren't on a computer. Uh, and I gave them the, cig the cigarette smoking data set. And I said, go build the model. And some of them chose to print out every possible model. And there were literally quadrillions of them. And they had a printing uh, limit of 200 pages. Also, this was 1993. I actually managed my students. Uh, uh, crashed the entire computer network at the University of Toronto. Um, uh, and I got some phone calls and I said, I told them not to do that. I literally explicitly said, don't do this. And there's a thing you can choose in SAS called all red, all possible regression. Well, I'll just do that anyway. There you go. So you can't do it when you get past three or four. Five you can do. Five is, uh, I forget how many. But it's not a huge, unwieldy number. It's pretty big, though. So one of the things we're going to look at of individual variables is where it's called residual plots. These can be exceedingly useful. And I talked about this a couple of days ago. I talked about looking at the residuals. That's the prediction errors and the x variable. So what we could do is look at the residual plots of each x variable with y. We can also look at the residual plot of the whole model with y. This allows you to find anomalies, find things that are strange, that don't belong, outliers, right? Or just things that are perhaps encoded incorrectly. There was the one person in that cigarette smoking data set that had reported smoking 400 cigarettes a day. That's got to be a coding error. Nobody can, you can't, there's not enough time in the day, and he'd be dead already. Right? You can also find nonlinear relationships. If you see, if you've got along the y-axis, you've got the size of the residual. Along the x-axis, you've got the x, right? And then you see that it goes like this. It's like, oh, that's not a straight line. That's a curve. Right? Or what if the whole model does that? It's like, oh, i got a problem. So there's a few ways to do this. One of them is called the, the select the final model. One of them is called forward selection. This is an automatic method that a, the computer software will do. You start with the score, with the x variable that has the highest r squared. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You would get the one that has the most overlap with y. <coughs> and then add in the next variable that gives the biggest jump in r squared. That sounds exceedingly sensible. Right? So they just keep going until the jump in R squared is not big enough. You have some cutoff point and you say, okay, we stopped here, here's our model. So that's one automatic method that's used. You'll see this uh, option in every piece of software you'd ever use for any kind of statistical procedure uh, for a progression. You would always see the forward selection approach. It's just one approach you can use which is automatic, it's an algorithm, and it just builds you a model. How big is big enough? It actually works like this. It's a statistic called F, F star. And it's mean squared regression for x1 given x2, given that it's what, the type 1 and the type 2? It's type 2 over the type 1, actually. Right? Given, uh, divided by mean squared regression for x1 over uh, times x2. I'm never going to ask you uh, to do, the, do a calculation like this. Like you know what that is, and all it is is a way to determine how much extra variance, is it a significant amount, it's an F-test, of extra variance that's being dealt with, that's being added to the model. Significant amount of unique variance, see? 
So that's why, that's, that's what you look at F star, you do that. That's what it does, you don't do it. Uh, my advice to you would never, if you ever use this approach, is don't change the default. Leave the F star where it is. It's set up to be perfectly reasonable. And it's set up at 0.05 significance, basically. Okay? You can do, go, go the other way. Put every, it's the, this is the opposite of forward selection. You put every variable in the model, all 22 of them, and you start removing ones that take out small amounts of variance. Yeah? Um, the last one, did you say we to determine how much extra variance is added to the model? Exactly. Okay. So you start out with the very, all the variables in the model, and you delete variables that contribute the least amount of variance. Again, using that F star statistic. Always oh, in a really small F star, I throw it at Why would you use this over forest selection? Forest selection seems to be there. Because they, they actually come up with different solutions? <laughs> Usually? But presuming that the cutoff is the same, right? Yeah. Shouldn't you name it? No. <laughs> That's the thing about this. The problem with these automatic methods is they don't agree usually. Or they often don't agree. So when the smallest F star is taken out, and you keep going until you say, oh, significant F star, let's stop. Because remember, Michael is not carrying about the collinearity so much. It's not talking about, oh, do these, do these two variables together overlap with a third? So actually, that could cause a significant jump in F star or a significant drop in F star. Okay. So it would be better to account for that in the back again. It would be better to what? So it would be better to account for that. No, uh, neither of them are really. It, it, it's probably the case in that case, yes, if you had some situation that I just described, yeah. You could also do stepwise, <coughs> oh, <geez. coughs> stepwise regression. This puts the two together. But this is the one people like. You go forward, so you start with the biggest F to enter, it's called. And you check, then, so you check F star for each variable. Well, the biggest goes in. And then you do the next one. And you throw in, so you put an X1, now you put an X2. And then you find out what happens if I take X2 out. I've explained this to give you a of variance. What happens if I take it out? Does it, does it, does it drop a significant amount of variance? You might say, how can that be? Well, it's all the remember at X1 and X2, it's, it's not going to make, it's not going to stop yet. At X3, though, it might be that it has a significant amount of variance, but taking it out, because you've got so much overlap in the explained variance in Y, then it might. It, it might not hurt so much to take it out, and that's when it stops. What you do is you set the criteria for adding and dropping. Uh, this is a case where you never want to play with the defaults. Because if you make them the same value, F to enter and F to drop, <coughs> it just gets caught in an infinite loop. And this is another thing my students did at U of T. I told them, please don't play with the defaults. And again, they crashed an entire computer system. There's no email. Oh, it's Broadback student's fault. This was made for any kind of thing. So F star to enter is F greater than equal to F star to leave. If it's not, it's going to iterate through each variable and just see which one moves. It's exactly what it does. This is, now you can probably see that, yeah, and hopefully conceptually you can see what's happening. Bring one in, see if we've dropped any others, what happens? The neat thing is, it can happen like in step five, you drop the variable that you put in in step two. Because now we're explaining more variance, and there's a bit of overlap, and it kicks ahead. So this sounds a lot better. The automatic methods look really at one thing. They look at F star. They don't look at residual plots. They don't really care about multicollinearity. It affects those F values, but they aren't really looking at that, specifically looking at that. So they're not looking at residual plots. They don't know about violation of linearity, which is really important. They don't, they don't look for outliers. They don't care. 
that were monolinearity things. They don't specifically look at multilinearity. They don't look at residual plots in general. And I've said, you know, what if we had the residual plot I talked to the other day, going with a cone? So as x gets bigger, the prediction error gets bigger. Well, they're not supposed to be dependent on each other. It doesn't look for that. That's something you can spot with your human eyes, using your brain. Now, can somebody probably build somebody who does this now with computer power? I'm sure somebody could. I've not seen it though. Here's an approach. This is whatever I've done whenever I've played with multi with, with multi regression. I start with the correlation matrix. So I look at every single variable, all the x's and y, and see which ones correlate with each other. I pick a subset um, of those that correlate highly with y and don't correlate with each other very much. And again, as I was mentioning to Michael before, that's a subjective call. And if it's, say, all four or under, I just do all of them. I do all of them. And I look at all the residual plots for every single variable within one variable model, two variable model, three. It's a little time consuming, but it works. I then also try all three automatic methods, forward selection, backward selection, and stepwise regression. I do all three. It used to be, by the way, it's not like this anymore, you do that and you walk away, because it would take the computer an hour. I remember doing mathematical modeling on an Apple IIe, and we used to like, put a sign on it, do not unplug computer, do not turn off, because it would take a week to run the calculations. Now I got a new computer and it ran it in like 10 seconds. That's great. We were scrambling all the equipment. The whole time I'm checking the wires uh, on residual plots. And I'm checking the residual plots in general. Then I do it again. Um, if I do it two times in a row and I agree with myself, I figure I probably did, uh, you know, I didn't miss anything. This is what I've done when I've played with this kind of stuff. I've never published anything with regression. I've helped people do regression. Bit of a different thing. I've done it for myself for uh, my own purposes for stuff, which I'm not going to do. One other thing you can look at, by the way, is something called CP. It's a CP. So it's. Uh, so, one of the things I look at also is, is this quantity called CP. Okay? And CP, it's called Mallow's CP, M A L L O W. He's like um, Marshmallow, same spelling. And CP, the neat thing about it is, it's a measure of bias. It's, it, it, it predicts how much the model is over predicting or under predicting. It's not dead on right, it can't be, because we'd have to know the, we know the truth. Okay. But the nice thing about CP is the expected value of CP is P. And P is the number of predictors plus one. So if I've got a four variable model and I've got a CP of 4.8, it's like, oh boy, that's pretty close to five. If I've got a six variable model and the CP is like, oh, I don't know, let's say the CP on the, on the five, four variable model, or five variable model is 27, there's a problem. So it's a much, very overlooked statistic in, in regression model building, is CP. And I like it because, it, like I said, it actually is going to tell me something about it. It estimates how much I'm over or under predicting. And that's a neat thing. That's a good thing to know. That's a good thing to know. Um,
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's pod safe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.